1: And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We are live. It's 2018. Where are we? We're taping this podcast from Nick Bilton's home office somewhere in undisclosed location in Los Angeles. And I'm going to take Nick's role here and I'm going to paint the room. I'm sitting in a glorified outhouse somewhere in Los Angeles <laughs> looking at a, a Peloton bike that's obviously never been used twice. ever. Used twice. twice. Okay, it looks like it hasn't even been plugged in, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. There's a beautiful bookshelf with various Nick built-in books. I'm looking at a framed copy of... Oh, that's the first project you and I worked on. That's right. Savage Dawn of Twitter. Yeah, a New York uh, York Times magazine cover from uh, years ago when we were just little children, Mm -hmm. uh, long before we uh, reunited at The Hive. And a beautiful picture that, um, did Krista paint that? That is a painting that my wife painted. Yeah, Krista, that's right. And then um, various uh, pieces of of art, and I think not far away is the room where your mother-in-law sleeps. That is... (laughs) uh <laughs> it's a very intimate maybe too intimate uh d- um sort of uh, my dog my
2: dog pixel is off in the other room looking looking at us, wondering what we're doing back here
0: and we were just looking through the fence at your neighbor's beautiful pool
2: there you go um so uh um speaking of pools uh um so i had a fascinating guest on uh this week that you're about to hear um uh, he is uh, Cal Rousseyali. He's the director of the of the UCLA Burkle Center of International Relations. He's an expert on foreign policy, um, foreign affairs, on NGOs, and you name it. Uh, and uh, we we begin our conversation uh, talking about something that you and I know so well, pointing to that picture up there of that magazine cover uh, of of t- Twitter and uh, Donald Trump. And and I asked him about. Um, how, when Trump tweets a nuclear threat uh, to North Korea, um, how that kind of reverberates around the world. Like, does Putin find out instantly? Is there a meeting at the UN? And so on and so forth. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty fascinating conversation that we had today, I, gotta, I have to say.
0: Well, we're taping this at the end of what's been a, a very Twitter-esque week. Because on the one hand, Trump has been sort of stoking, positively, the unrest in Iran and on the other end of the spectrum, besides beating up on steve bannon he's he's also been uh you know somewhat threatening to blow up the world on twitter of course Twitter kind of had its its It's opening on the world stage during the Arab Spring when it was used as an important messaging service to connect people during a a period of of social unrest. Well, that
2: was its opening on the world stage that you knew about. If you were a nerd and lived in San Francisco, its opening on the world stage was actually in 2007 at South by Southwest when it won for the best startup.
0: Okay, but that was good Twitter. Uh, Yes, yes, yes. uh, yes, The Iran protest was good Twitter. Bad Twitter, of course, is... um, this, you know, sort of uh, nuclear brinksmanship. When, back in 2007, when you were just getting to meet these guys and reporting on the company in its infancy, when it was the best startup, did they have any sense that they would either be involved in global positive uprisings like the Arab Spring no. or terrifyingly had negative ones? No, so
2: I no idea. So the first time I ever, ever interacted with these guys was... It was around that time that they had gone to South by Southwest. And I, I was at the New York Times at the time. I was in the research and development labs. And our job there was to kind of envision what the future of media and technology would be and, and present it to the newsroom and try to figure out how they could you know, use these new tools coming down the pike. And, and this is the, the time the, the iPhone did not exist, um, to really age myself here. Uh, and, um, and I remember we got on the phone with Jack Dorsey and Biz Stone, uh, and no one knew who they were. Like barely anyone knew what Twitter was. I think it was like 60,000 people using the platform or something. And the entire conversation was, cause we were like, this could be actually interesting for like breaking news. Um, and the entire conversation was, was Jack and biz trying to justify the reason in existence for this platform. And I remember, I think it was Jack that told the story about this guy who um, who used to tweet about, he thought it was such a dumb product mm. that he used to tweet every time he went to the toilet. And he would tweet, I'm going on the toilet again, on the toilet again. And then one day he was walking down the street and, and like a manhole exploded in New York or something like that. And he live tweeted. It was like one of the first news events, if you will. He live tweeted that. But they, even then, they they had no concept of what it was that they built. And for them, it was a social network back then was... Was just this fun, goofy thing, and they were using it. You know, Jack was going to clubs and concerts and Coachella, and if a bunch of his friends were there and they were trying to meet up, he would. They would all tweet to each other, and I'm at this event or at that one, and that was what it was. And it wasn't until until the Arab Spring that they actually kind of had this holy shit moment.
0: One of the sort of alarming things about Twitter in the company that it's grown into is that while it's understandable that founders might not know what their company would beget, it seems after the events of this week, that the precautions aren't in place. Twitter did a... The, per, the, it, the precautions are not... There's no precautions. But but Twitter actually did, like, some sort of, you know, uh, in, internal bureaucratic accounting of whether Trump violated a policy that most... Normal, you know, first world nations would recognize uh, what was problematic, and they just and they just sort of kicked the can down the road and said this doesn't validate, uh, you know, invalidate any of our uh, principles or, or run afoul of any of our company guidelines. I, I think you're giving Twitter too much credit for actually
2: doing the thinking behind these things. Mm-hmm. I think you know if you look at the, you know, the timeline of of when things happened. For example, when Rose McGowan was kicked off, it took 12 hours before someone realized what right. had happened. Um, the 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 company, I think, is. And I still talk to a lot of people that work there, former people that were, you know, very high up at the company. Um, and I think the company is is just kind of still run in many respects in the same way it was 11 years ago, just kind of on the seat of its pants. And they're kind of figuring it out as they're going. And I I think that when you look at, you know, the... Effect it has had and it is having on the world stage, and a lot of people that are like, should Trump be allowed to tweet about, you know, to to declare war or mm-hmm. pre- threaten to declare a nuclear war on another country on this platform? Um, and and I think that the uh, the people there just don't. It's it's beyond what they should be able to handle. They should not be making
0: these decisions. Do you think that in a world where Twitter may be a privately run company, which is one outcome that that some people like like Jamath have uh, have outlined for it, there would be some sort of adult in the room who would say, you know what, this is the line, you just crossed the line, we don't care if you're the the commander-in-chief or leader of the free world, but you can't issue nuclear provocations on our platform?
2: I think it depends who's running the company. You know, one of the things, you know, in my book on Twitter, Hatching Twitter, the, 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 you know, Jack Dorsey pretty much wanted to be famous. He wanted to be known as the guy who created this thing, who saved this thing, who made it what it was. He wanted to be seen as the next Steve Jobs. And he wanted to be loved by everyone. He like Literally, that was the most important thing to him. And the irony is, he's now back at Twitter running this thing, and he's despised by so many people because they think the platform is so dangerous. It was funny, he tweeted uh, right before he went on a 10-day silent retreat uh, uh, before Christmas, which ironic. Someone else said, you know, uh, Jack Dorsey going on a silent retreat for 10 days is like the CEO of McDonald's going on a green juice cleanse for it's 10 true. days. Um, but he tweeted, uh, an emoji of, of the hands up in the air prayer sign. And, uh, and someone in San Francisco, uh, responded with the, uh, the fucking middle finger, uh, <laughs> emoji. But I think that's how people feel about him right now because they, a lot of people, especially in Silicon Valley, because they think that the that, the com- that he and the company are putting their bottom line before the protections of the world and so on and so forth.
0: Well, we talk a lot on the show about how social networks are at this sort of breaking point um, where they're about to be regulated in a new way. They're, they're about to lose popularity. They're about to sort of reach a level of maturity where they're going to have to appeal to a whole new level of audience. But I'm interested to hear on this podcast and in this conversation in particular how they're about to be viewed by the State Department, the National Security Council, and yep. the Pentagon. Well,
2: I um, I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that, that Cal said that was really fascinating was just kind of how this is this is a whole new era for everyone in foreign affairs, and it's something that...
0: For everyone everywhere, by the way. I mean, I feel like that's one of the things that, that we talk about a lot, that we are sort of all, I don't mean to be dramatic, but that we are all flying blind in, yep. in some way in this new world.
2: Yeah, and I mean, all I can hope for is that uh, people will will still be alive in two days, and they can listen to this podcast. Download
0: this podcast if you're alive in two days on <coughs> Apple Podcast or one of our other wonderful podcast providers.
2: Uh, should we uh, Should we get started with Cal then? Let's do it. All right. Thanks for Thanks for coming out to LA just to just to paint the room here.
0: Can I borrow the Peloton?
2: You can use it. I'm going to go take a nap. All right. So I will, of course, begin where we don't want to begin, uh, with a tweet. <clears throat> Welcome to 2018. We're only a couple of days into 2018, and Donald Trump, of all people, tweeted the following. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un just stated that the nuclear button, nuclear button being null caps, um is on his desk at all times. Will someone from his depleted and food-starved regime please inform him that I, too, have a nuclear button, but it is much bigger and more powerful one than his, and my button works? Exclamation mark. So, serious question. How does someone from uh, North Korea, this, you know, depleted nation, actually see that tweet? And what happens from, like, a foreign policy perspective when... The president of the United States of America sends a message that
1: most two-year-olds would send like that. It's a great question. I think, first of all, we know so little about how North Korea reacts to anything or understands anything. The people who have been there, and I have not been there, I've been to the DMZ, I've looked at it, but I've never actually been in. But people who have been there say that they really are puzzled. Like A lot of our allies and enemies are puzzled about what Donald Trump is up to at any given time. And what these Trumps, what these Trump tweets actually mean for American foreign policy? So, so does does uh, so? I guess the, the, one question is like so. When the, one of these
2: tweets goes out, I would imagine that if you kind of went back, you know, thirty, forty years ago, Cold War, um, and uh, a, the president had like put out a statement like that, there'd be a big meeting at the UN. There'd be you know all these discussions and 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 policy people having conversations like. Does a tweet do that these days from Trump? Is it? Is it? Does it set the world into motion? Does Putin find out about this? And is there like are there big discussions
1: everywhere, or is it just like oh god, the crazy guy's on his phone again? I think it's a little of both. I think right now there's so many of those that every people do pay attention to what he says without question because he is the ultimately the decider, especially on an issue like this. That said, he's tweeting constantly. Half of them seem harebrained; the others are disgusting, and so. I think people are are discounting that. But yeah, they are paying attention to it. And they're puzzling about what do we make of these things. So, okay. So a few weeks ago, I wrote a piece about um,
2: something Trump had said that was just asinine. I don't even remember what it was. It's like they, they kind of blur together. Um, and I got a bunch of – somehow this article somehow ended up in the uh, the Trump uh, you know ensemble of, of Trump supporters. And I got a bunch of emails from people with AOL email addresses, which I thought was, was Interesting. telling. Interesting telling me how I was a fucking idiot. Well, what idiot. do you interpret that as? Uh, old. old. Uh, old, older tech savvy. Cause they've been around so long and they've been using, maybe, it I don't think these were tech savvy folks, but it is a good question. Uh, I'd say old or from North Korea. Um, <laughs> and, um, and the funny thing was they were, you know, call me an idiot and saying, I didn't understand, uh, you know, Trump's foreign policy and that we are now for once respected in the world and feared by China and Russia and all these other places. Um, that's not right,
1: right? Am I, no, am I wrong in, in that not perspective? Right. How are we perceived currently? I think, let's just start with Asia. I think in China, start with China, since you mentioned that. I think the Chinese think that Trump's kind of a fool who is easily bamboozled. And when he went to China, one of the things they did was roll out all of the grandeur of imperial China. So they gave him a special opera. They showed him all this stuff. Saudis did a similar thing. They put his you know, face up on a giant billboard. So they know that they could play to his vanity and manipulate him and that he really doesn't know anything. So when he had that Mar-a-Lago meeting with President Xi, the president of China, you know, he said, oh yeah, after 10 minutes of talking about North Korea, now I understand it's more complicated. So you know, <laughs> it's like, well, you could, you could have learned that beforehand before meeting with him. So I think they don't really fear him. I think they think he's kind of stupid. I think they think... He, Correctly, he doesn't know very much, and that his uh, his narcissism makes him easily manipulated. So, from America, from a standpoint of
2: America um, as as the world's superpower, right? Um, is is this going to make us? Is, does this help China become number one? And if so, absolutely. It, are they? Are they? And we, are they already number one, and we just don't realize it yet, or is it is it something that's going to happen over a short period
1: of time, or? What is your theory? That's a good question. No, they're not number one now, but it does totally help them because there's been a long-standing um, issue of China rising and we're not falling, but we're in relative terms, we're getting smaller and less significant over time. What's happened with Trump is he has seeded so much leadership on a whole set of issues. You could start with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. One of the very first things he did was kill that. This was a trade agreement um, intended to isolate China, one could say, within the Pacific. But he's done many other things that make other countries more interested in understanding China and being closer with China or having a better relationship with China. And power uh, abhors a vacuum. And so as we retreat, China's stepping up. It's just, it was probably inevitable, but it's happening faster and faster. And so do you think that, you know?
2: By the end of this podcast, are they going to be number one? Or are they, is, it, is it 10 years from now? No, it's, or? A long, it's a long way off.
1: It also depends on what you mean by number one. Yeah, and so, that
2: was my next yeah. question, is how do, you define, how do you define that we are the global superpower? Is it because we have the most nuclear weapons? Is it because we are
1: you know, have the biggest GDP? Like, what is, what is it, yeah. and what, is, what are the things that— That's uh, an excellent question. It's really hard to answer that. There's, there's so many dimensions, but if you just start with some of the big ones, military power. China has a lot of military power. We have vastly more we have a dozen or so aircraft carrier groups that can project power all over the globe. We're the only nation that can do that. China is trying to roll out a few. They have a couple now. So that's just one indicator. They have a massive army. It's very good at maybe defending the Chinese borders. What they can't do is project force in the way the United States can. So, how, and- wait, so how,
2: can you explain how that works? So so we have all these aircraft carriers so we can kind of go to different places and China doesn't, so they they are limited to how, how many places they can go to, or how far they can go, or what, what is it? Both. Both. I would
1: say they're limited. They're, in a sense, a regional power. I mean, they're a, they're a global power in many respects, but militarily, it's difficult for China to, let's say there was a Latin American crisis, and China's going to intervene. That's not that realistic for China. Like, they could try, and they have some ability to do that. What they don't have is the ability that we have to go anywhere. And it's not just our carrier groups. It's our, most importantly, our network of bases. So we have alliances with dozens of countries in which South Korea is a good example. We have roughly, I don't know, 40,000, 50,000 American troops and and support personnel sitting in South Korea right now, similar in Japan, similar all over the world. China doesn't have anything remotely close to that. So we have all these assets already staged and the ability to go all over and planes that can fly everywhere. They just don't.
2: And so, and part of the reason we have all those bases is because of diplomacy is that yes correct yes so are there is there fear that some of these places are going to be like
1: i don't like you guys anymore you can leave now that's definitely a problem the other problem is that they're not going to trust that we're going to be there when they need us so these arrangements they vary but a lot of them are basically mutual security arrangements that's nato that's south korea that's japan we're going to defend them, and they're going to defend us. Obviously, it's kind of a one-way street. We don't yeah. usually need defending; yeah. they're the ones who need defending. Um, but you know, whatever—they're there for us if we would call on them. The question is: Is that a credible commitment on our part? So, will the South Koreans believe that we are actually going to go to war to protect them? If, as is the case right now, North Korea can threaten LA with annihilation, that was not the case a few years ago. Now. So one the North Koreans are more powerful and two Trump has raised all these questions in their minds. Well is he actually does he actually care about this? And what, where does China stand on this? I mean,
2: does China if let's just say that hypothetically uh we were really going to go to war with them with China with no with North Korea. Okay. China's going to defend North Korea, right? I mean they're, they're gonna they they're going to take the alliance. Of, yeah. Just is is that the beginning of of a World
1: War 3, I mean or yeah, it's a terrible prospect it could be, it could be. I mean, I any war between the US and China is almost unthinkable because it's you're talking about two nuclear powers with a lot of weaponry. North Korea alone is dangerous for South Korea, for Japan, for all the Americans there and frankly for the mainland US as well. So yeah, I think a war like that we haven't seen anything quite like that in the nuclear age. Okay, so
2: speaking of the nuclear age, let's go to the Cold War for a minute to see if we can learn a few lessons here. So during the Cold War, you had a lot of crazy people, you know. Not They didn't have a Twitter account, of course, but, you know, you had Nixon, uh, you had Khrushchev. The original madman. The original madman, the first and only. You had MacArthur, who wanted to nuke North Korea and China, um, uh, and Truman pushed him back, of course. You had assassinations, you had Cuba, it, it, you know, I mean— Looking at it in hindsight, it was pretty chaotic. A lot of action. A lot of action. What stopped us back then, during this 45-year Cold War period, uh,
1: from actually killing each other? That is a fantastic question that people have been pondering for a long time. First of all, people don't appreciate that we came pretty close. Yeah, for 45 years. So the Cuban Missile Crisis is the thing that people often look at. Um, There's also the Sino... There were tons. Yeah. And there were tons of accidents that, you know, famous examples, the guy puts the wrong training tape in or mistakes, mistakes the training tape for the real thing and starts to launch a Minuteman. The Russian story, there's a million stories of how close we came to the brink that we only realize now. There's, I was I was doing some research before we, we spoke, and, you know, you... There's the Korean Airlines
2: flight over Soviet airspace. There's the Norwegian rocket incident. There's yes. the it's, it's signing Soviet border conflict. I mean, it's just endless, the things that yes. almost went wrong, a lot of them actually because of technology.
1: But, but we didn't we end We were lucky. Up, was it just luck? I think in a lot of those situations, it was luck. Uh, but there was more than luck. I mean, we, we spent an incredible amount of time and effort thinking about nuclear deterrence and mutually assured destruction and how it would work and trying to understand the logic of that. And when it came to the Soviets, we did a pretty good job of kind of—that's why it's a Cold War—of kind of freezing that conflict and doing it successfully. But it's a very scary prospect. And I think most people don't appreciate, one, how dangerous it was then. And two, by the way, there are still tons of Russian missiles pointed right now at the United States ready to launch and vice versa. But but so the people back
2: then were crazy, right? Were they—are the people today
1: crazier? Crazier. You know, there's a big debate about, let's just take North Korea— I'm not a North Korea expert, but a lot of people who are North Korea experts think that uh, the Kim family has been highly rational over time, that as crazy as they seem in some respects, they actually are highly rational. They're containable and deterrable. And that in fact, all they really want is to make sure that they are safe and secure, and nuclear weapons are the ultimate deterrent for that. I tend to agree with that view. I I think that from the research that I've read and everything. I totally agree with that. And I also think they're never going to give those weapons up, Correct. because all they have to do is look at the examples of countries that have given those weapons yeah. up. This is Libya, for example, and see what happened to that regime. So they're never going to give them up. We're going to have to live with this. And in ten years, twenty years, hopefully we'll all be around. We're going to have a nuclear North Korea. I just think that's the reality. We're already there. So does the so the the nuclear North
2: Korea? It protects them, but it doesn't. There's no way that it's going to change sanctions. It's not going to. Or does North Korea, you know, is for as rational from a, from a nuclear standpoint, that, that 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 the Kim family is, they're irrational in the respect of they don't care what happens to their citizens.
1: Yeah, I mean, irrational does not necessarily mean like optimal or smart. Yeah, they're
2: just rational in the respect of they know if they press this button, that's the
1: end. Right. Yeah, I think they suffer a lot, and in the long run it's hard to know how long that regime can continue. On the other hand, they've gone on a really long time, and they've been through much worse periods, so much worse famines. The sanctions are pretty severe, but North Korea, by most accounts, is doing okay in its, compared to its past. So the idea that the regime is going to get turned over, I don't know. So um,
2: you and I both live in Los Angeles, uh, and we're recording this from Los Angeles. Is there a chance... That if they were like, all right, we have one button to push, or even if Iran wanted to do it, or whoever, China, something like that, is there a chance that we would be first? So we were living in the wrong place? For the North Koreans? For the North Koreans. I don't... Why would they come after us? I mean, wouldn't you want to go
0: all the New way to York, DC.
2: DC, Boise, Idaho?
1: I mean... Yeah, probably. I'm hoping for that. We're not a great place. You know, we're like one of the biggest Korean cities on earth here in LA. We have a huge Korean population. I think that they would probably view us as a pretty good target. But I'm hoping that D.C. or New York would be first. <laughs> <laughs> we should, we should uh, do the math and see how far we are from
2: Koreatown and what the fallout would be. Right. And, and We're pretty and, close right now. And so on. All right. So, um, so during the Cold War, um, the U.S. came up with this theory called the domino theory, right? And the idea was that if they were to to make one country fall uh, one communist country fall that that there would be a domino effect and the others would fall what it seems like is happening now is that Putin is trying to do the same thing with um, with you know these democratic countries that, that we all live in and so on and so forth we saw it with brexit we saw it with the u s election and um, we we're seeing it where he's using social media and so on and so forth to to try to essentially you know, he didn't want Trump in power because he thinks he's a nice guy who's going to be better to Russia. He wants us to to, to crumble.
1: Um, Do you think it could work? I'm going to question whether he really has that strategy. I think, let's just take Trump. I think he, like virtually everybody on earth, thought there was no chance that Trump was going to be president. Oh, of course. But, you know, he has a relationship, or the Russians have had a relationship with Trump going back for decades. So if you remember Trump's first wife, Ivana was Czech. And they married during the Cold War. So she was still under the Soviet orbit. And so from the very beginning, the Russians have known about Trump. He has been to Moscow many times, including during Soviet times. So this is not a new thing for them. So I feel really confident that they had a pretty good read on him and that they knew a lot of stuff about him. Now, I don't know what that stuff is. P-tapes. Lots of P-tapes. Maybe. maybe. Um, The dossier suggests that there's a lot of uh, interesting material that would be compromising, but we don't really know. So I think they're just taking advantage of that, and they're trying to mess with us as best they can, and this was like a Christmas gift that fell from the sky. Do you think that, that, uh,
2: that, you know, okay, look, if I was Putin, um, I would what what would be better than to watch, you know, America and China get into it with each other and I can just sit oh, yeah. back and, and you know, be in charge uh, afterwards or during or whatever. Do you think that that is part of his strategy or do you think that he gets too much credit and that a lot of it's just like, let me throw as much spaghetti against the wall
1: and just it just so happened that a bunch of it stuck? I think it's more the latter, I guess, with China, yeah, obviously that would be a good thing for him because Russia's kind of a declining power in a million ways. But I think what he's really interested in is his near abroad. So Ukraine, you know, Belarus, all of these countries nearby that were traditionally Soviet, he wants that back. And so you know, in a way, the most important thing for him is putting a wedge between us and the Europeans. And Trump's doing his work for him. Mm-hmm. He's making it easy. So from a, from a foreign policy perspective, how does... How
2: does that work? How do, we, how do we get into a situation where you know, where we are in trouble with our biggest allies? Aren't they smart enough to understand that most Americans don't support mm-hmm. these kinds of things that Trump is saying and doing towards them? Or, and they're just like, hey, you know, we're just going to kind of ride through these next three right. years
1: and, and, and hope everything works out? I think there's some of that. I think they, so our our NATO allies, like first of all, some of the things Trump says are not that crazy. So it's true that the Europeans could put more money into defense, and we've been telling them that for a long time. So Obama told them that. That's not new. He's just so much more belligerent about it that it does raise this question of, again, is he actually going to defend Berlin if the Soviets attack? Like this has been something we've thought about for whatever, decades. But yeah, I think some of them just feel like, okay, we're going to ride out this crazy guy. But it's not that easy to ride it out because we are incredibly important to the defense of Europe, and they have their own problems as well. So they recognize that this populism that he represents is also a problem for them as well, yeah. or a phenomenon for them as well. So I don't know that they could dismiss it as just a blip because it's some kind of worldwide. It's not just Trump. It's so a, well, yeah. So I mean, I think that's that. That was my next question was. This populism that we're
2: seeing, this nationalism, uh, is a pushback against this kind of globalism that we saw, and it benefits the it benefits our enemies more than it benefits anyone. And yes, don't people understand that? I mean, don't doesn't don't, don't no, the governments that the, the,
1: they don't? I mean, is it just like a? I think some people do. I think they also. Yeah, I think it's complicated. There's just, to me, what's so interesting is the contagion that takes place. So these things happen, like, yes, there's nationalism and populism all over the Western world right now. Where is it coming from? and What's driving it? And how is it interacting? And it's just, it's really hard to say, but there's no question there's some kind of contagion that happens. So what do you th- what's your theory? I don't have one. I don't really have one, but I, I think that right now what we're seeing is there there is a obviously a kind of global media that enables this kind of thing. So people know what's happening all over the world. They can see it. They can understand it faster than they could before. Um, and there's shared phenomena that are driving it. So like the globalism you talked about, the trade agreements, the EU, Brexit. And then there's also just, I think, randomness, kind of like we talked about luck in the Cold War. So the Brexit vote, we know a lot of people voted... Yes, thinking there's no way that's gonna happen. Well
2: my sister uh, i my I'm from England yeah, and and my uh I have a twin sister and she she voted yes and she did it because she has a uh a kid who um uh has to go to the doctor a lot. Um and he she went to the to the doctor with the NHS and um and uh he's a special needs kid and they were like, Oh well your appointment's three weeks from now and she was so livid that and the, they explain it's because all these people are coming from Poland and all these different places and, uh, and the system's completely backed up and clogged. And, and she was so livid that she was like, I'm just going to go and vote yes so that uh, I can kind of, my voice can be heard. But then I spoke to her the morning of the vote and I was like, what Shock. the hell did you do? And she's like, I don't know. <laughs> and like, and I feel like yeah. so many of them did that. But there were also a lot of people that did vote for it n- intending. No, No question.
1: You know, no question. But I think we discount like humans want to see patterns in everything and I think we do discount the role of chance like even Trump so you could analyze and people obviously the media has been analyzing Trump's win for a year now but the fact is there were like 17 candidates originally yeah and you know but for a couple of weird little things it could have just as easily been Jeb or Marco Rubio or whatever and Trump ended up at the end there was definitely contingency in that so I I think we have to be careful not to read too much into it. Same thing with Brexit. Like, could have gone the other way pretty easily, but it didn't. Anyway, the fact is there is this phenomenon around the world, and that is fascinating. I can't explain it.
2: All right. So um, uh, there's been um, a lot of chatter lately, uh, and this is maybe my last Trump question for a little while, um, uh, but there's been a lot of chatter lately about um, people saying that Twitter should ban Trump. Hmm. Um, there's people that say that it's too quick, it's too, there's, there's you know, uh, maybe if, you know, I I don't think you can ban the president of the United States for using a platform. But there have been discussions about like, well, maybe there should be rules around how uh, leaders globally, how people who can affect the potential nuclear, potential nuclear war, something like that. There should be rules around how they use these platforms, um, and the platform should come up with some rules. Maybe there should be algorithms that slow things down. There should be mm-hmm. rules that say you can't declare war on here or whatever it is. If you were in charge of, like, Twitter or Facebook or something like that, would you implement something like that, or do you just kind of have to let the technology step aside and the crazy people use it? It's an interesting question. I mean, you're the Twitter expert here, but I would say... If it were up to me, I'd pull the plug on the whole thing, but... <laughs> That might be a better idea. Keep going.
1: Yeah, I don't really see how that's workable to have some kind of special rule for the president or for world leaders generally. It just doesn't seem realistic. Like, first of all, there are going to be other outlets. Like, so you do Twitter, whatever. This Oh, water finds its level. He's going to get his message out no matter what. So I think it would ultimately be hopeless uh, to try to do it. But it just, yeah, it, it wouldn't work. I really don't think it would work. So no, I wouldn't do that. I would not do that. All right, well, I would. Um. <laughs> You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
2: So I'd like to take a note to thank our sponsor this Wait, week.
0: Wait, Nick, before we even get there, I have a problem. When I get home after work, all I want is a delicious, freshly prepared meal. Did you just warm- say freshly?
2: I did that say is fresh, so funny because our sponsor this week is actually called Freshly. It is a meal delivery service that delivers fresh fully cooked, prepared meals straight to your door so you can skip shopping, chopping, and cleanup. You don't say. No, I do say. And the ingredients are all the finest, the freshest, natural. Um, It's really fascinating. I used it a few times. Um, The food is so, so good. What kind of food are you into, John? Well, Nick
0: G's, I'm practically taking off my clothes here, just salivating. (laughs) Uh, I I love chicken. Give me some chicken dishes. All right,
2: so uh, they they have lots of different options for chicken. Um, They have the... Uh, the barbecue chicken, which comes with sweet chicken. potato hash and oh, roasted veggies. Yeah. Um, it's beautiful. Can I show you some pictures over here of the stuff? Jesus Christ. That there, is a beautiful barbecue chicken. There's spaghetti squash and meatballs. Um, uh, they have veggie dishes if you're vegetarian. I've, I've tried the Southwest veggie, uh, veggie Bowl, which is is unbelievably you tasty. You lucky son of a bitch. I can't believe it. Um, and uh, lots of different uh, different things like uh, shrimp scampi, three bean chili. Is that three bean ancho turkey chili?
0: That is three bean. It's really good uh, actually. I'm a, a, a ride or die three bean ancho chili turkey guy.
2: So uh, Freshly um, is fantastic and I, I think you should try it. And they are actually are running a special for listeners of Inside the Hive this week. Um, you get uh, two weeks of dinners cooked by their chefs for $40 off. Uh, To try Freshly, all you need to do, John, is go to Freshly.com slash Hive um, and get $20 off your first week and then another $20 off your second week. I'm going to tell you, you're absolutely going to love it. What's the website?
0: Is that Freshly?
2: Freshly.com slash Hive. That's H-I-V-E to get $40 off your order. Um, Give it a shot. You're going to love it. You won't have to cook anything. You'll thank me later. You can, you can send me some Bitcoin as a thank you.
0: Well, Nick, I'm going to end this conversation and run out of this room and go to the interweb and type in www.freshly.com. Slash hive. All right. So, um, so last year, Putin talked about
2: artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he said was whoever owns artificial intelligence owns the future. Um, and they own the world essentially um, I think that 's right, and I think that 's right too um, and uh, and i the thing that I keep thinking about is how do you it 's one thing if if we develop some sort of technology in the u s and we discover it 's bad you know we've, whether it 's a technology or a tool or toys or whatever it is, we have rules and regulations in right. place that say hey this you can 't use this because you know kids are going to poke their eye out with that dart gun or, or whatever it is, or, or, you know, these brakes don't work and, and, and X number of people have died as a result. And if, if that were the case with artificial intelligence, we could set up rules and regulations. But from an international law standpoint, how do you do that with something as dangerous as what potentially
1: could be as dangerous as, as artificial intelligence or other technologies? I think it's really hard to set up rules to govern a technology. We know this from experience. You know, we, do, we tend to do it after the fact. So when the car was invented, cars have changed our society, for sure, mostly for the better, I guess. But there's been a lot of negatives. Yep. But we deal with those after the fact, typically. Like we discover, oh, they kill people or, oh, it turns out they pollute the air. Let's start regulating that. And we tend to do that with a pretty big lag. That's not a promising story for AI. Because the thing, the signature feature about AI is the ability to actually start to self-replicate and you know, develop its own actual intelligence. That's, that's what's so... The machine learning part is what's so concerning to a lot of people. And when you tack that on to the international level, now you have to somehow harmonize these regulatory systems with all these other countries very, very slow. The only parallel I can think of is we do have a treaty on nuclear weapons, uh, the NPT, not... Not ineffective, but not that effective. Why do you say not, not ineffective, but not that effective? Well, it's done, it's done a decent job. If we step back and we say, why don't more states have nuclear weapons? This is a 1940s technology, basically. Yeah. Now, we've, the rocketry and everything else has changed quite a bit. But the basic idea we developed during World War II. It's like black and white television. So why don't more states have them? There's only nine, basically, that have them. That's kind of shocking. So you could attribute that to a lot of things, but one part is the NPT, which creates a deal between the nuclear states and the non-nuclear states. And so um, it's had some role in keeping the number of states down that have possessed nuclear weapons. So I don't think it's been totally ineffective. On the other hand, it hasn't solved the problem. So in other words, we still, it's supposed to lead to a reduction in nuclear weapons. That really hasn't happened. No, there's still tens of thousands of Yeah. Them, right? I mean, from the heights of the Cold War, we've reduced quite a bit. But it's like the ability to destroy the Earth a thousand times or a hundred times really doesn't matter. Hmm. So that's why I say it's not totally ineffective, but it's done something.
2: So do you, do you worry about, um, about another country
1: developing artificial intelligence that could yes. wreak havoc globally? I mean, first of all, China is investing vastly more than we are and what are they doing what are they trying to build like what they're try, they're trying first of all they're trying to become a technology giant like we are already and in some respects they are very good at it become very good at it and they have some fundamental problems and the main problem is in an autocratic society sorry autocratic society like that it's difficult to get people to be really creative what do you mean well like our universities and Not just our universities, our think tanks, Silicon Valley, all these places are creative places that allow people to break rules and disrupt in order to develop some new idea that nobody thought of the day. No one had thought of until that day. And you need a kind of spirit of openness and freedom and rule breaking to do that. And we're very good at that. You have to question authority to change it. And so I think in China, one of the things they're struggling with is they don't have their universities are not that great. Like, they're good, but they're not at the level of ours. And they don't have a Silicon Valley equivalent, but they're kind of getting there. Like, they have some really amazing companies and, you know, their cell phones or whatever. They're very, very good on a lot of these things. So it's just to say they're trying to do this across the board. But with AI, yeah, I think the government is focused on it in a way that our government is not. So you've written a lot about um, uh,
2: the paradox of of countries like China and counterfeiting and so on and so forth. Um, and the, one of the things that you've said is that that counterfeiting is actually a good thing, right? That it can lead to more creativity. If you look at the fashion industry and so on and so forth. Copying is a good thing. Copying. Counterfeiting. I'm going to. Got it. Okay. Uh, wrong choice of words. So, uh, um, and, and with technology, we've seen a tremendous amount of that. Um, you know, uh, look at China, for example, sure. and what they've copied. So are you saying that with AI. this is going to be kind of like the first time that a country like
1: China will be doing it on their own? Interesting. So let me just back up for one second and say, copying can be good. I don't want to say it's always good. It it. can be good, and it's often misunderstood. In the case of AI, AI is just, it's almost its own category of thing because it has so many dimensions to it. Um, I mean, if you're asking, is China going to be the leader is that what you mean? Are they going gonna... I'm
2: to... Just, I'm just... I'm curious if... Okay, so if I... Let's just say that, you know, in your book and, and on videos online and so on, you talk about f- some of the benefits of this, right? So uh, um, that the, if I come up with something and I copy and then change it a little bit or, some, or someone copies it and changes it a little bit, there's this creativity that happens. We're, right. all, we're all on the shoulder of giants and so on and so forth. And what I am curious, and I see this with technology from China that they copy from the United States. I have a a friend that works for the U.S. government uh, and deals exactly in this issue, and was telling me that you know, for a lot of the stuff that they do in China, there's no R and D. They literally just come over here and steal something and then build it, like literally hundred million uh, dollar under the uh, uh, things that go in the the ocean for communication. Um, uh, All these different things he was telling me about, but. What my I guess my question is is what do you think will happen as a result of China doing something on their own without copying? Mm, are they going yeah. to approach it differently
1: in a way that Could be good or could be bad, or based on yeah. Okay, I get it. That's a good question. So AI is such a frontier thing. It's not like they're taking our AI and like tweaking it and making it a little bit better. They're starting from scratch. Yeah, they're kind of starting from scratch. I mean, I think you actually have this worldwide competition right now, where you've got Google, you know, all these different, um, largely corporate entities battling to be the AI leader. Some of that happening in China, and then a certain amount happening in academia and government and intelligence agencies and so forth. Um, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see China step up that way. One thing we know is that over the last few years, as China's economy has grown so much, they've become much more interested in being innovative. They've been more interested in intellectual property as a result of so figuring out what's their structure going to be. There are many more patents being filed in China today than in the United States hmm. um, by a large number. What, are they in a specific genre or just all over the place? All over the place, and a lot of them are probably junk, but... The fact is that would be, would have been unimaginable 10 years ago or 15 years ago. So China is changing its ways. And I think when it comes to things like AI, we will – so basically, I can't answer your question. I don't really – I don't know. But what we're seeing is a new kind of Chinese innovation economy occurring across the board. And AI is going to be a central part of that. And I think it will. Things will be different because the Chinese interest in technology is not always our interest in technology. They also have a different a different approach
2: to how they think about things. I mean, in, in, if I have a, f- a friend who is an expert on U.S.-China relations, and he was explaining to me that um, that if we took two billion dollars to build a new plane that was a, a you know some sort of weapon. Uh, we would build the biggest fucking thing we could imagine it would you know the wingspan the size of a football field and this that yeah. and the other china would build 2 billion dollars worth of of drones so you would have 100,000 weaponized drones so they think about it in a very different yeah. way and and it's just interesting to think about what they would how they would approach um, something that could be potentially as destructive if not more For in sure. many ways as as artificial intelligence and nuclear war Um, to think about how that country, you know, thinks about that.
1: No, and it's scary because they are willing to do all kinds of things that we're not. So like their use of facial, I mean, we're facing this issue about facial recognition technology and the way it can be used. And the Chinese have shown that technologies that may seem innocuous can be manipulated to make the state more powerful and its ability to control people's lives. Like examples? Um, so the example that I've heard, I can't, I've not seen this firsthand, but I've heard that there are read that they use facial technology, recognition technology in toilets to make sure that people do not steal toilet paper. Wow. It's that's, that's like what pretty, is, pretty is, extreme. Is toilet paper theft still punishable by death in Apparently China? Apparently it's a big deal in China. So anyway, that's just one mundane example of the ways in which they use it to control. No,
2: it's, it's scary. There was a report and I don't know, look how accurate it was. But there was a report last year that um, uh, that there was some researchers in the U.S. that had had figured out uh, using facial recognition could tell with like ninety six percent accuracy whether you were gay or not, um, and yes. you could imagine that falling into the hands of uh, Iran or something like that, um, and them rounding people up. Or it's going to happen. It's yeah, it's going to happen, and 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 so you know, I mean, one of the things you're an expert at is international law, and is there any kind of law that can can be put in place to stop this stuff from happening? Or are we just heading down this terrifying rabbit
1: hole that we don't know how we're going to get out of? I don't really think law is going to get us out of that rabbit Nothing. hole. Nothing. I think, you know, yes, you could have a law. You could try to have an international treaty on anything you want. But to do that, you need to get all of these countries involved, um, some of whom have no interest in being involved and you have to persuade them to, it's incredibly time consuming and you tend to have a lowest common denominator result because you need to, people have to consent to it. So you have to get them to agree. So the idea that we're going to law our way out of that. Is there guess, any way out of it?
2: I mean, look, if, really. okay, let's just say that, that we had a bunch of rational human beings running in these countries. Right? They would look at the Cold War. They would look at the nuclear arsenals. They would look at the potentials. They would watch the movie War Games. Right? They would figure out, like, right. hey, that was a really bad idea. This is a really bad idea. Shouldn't we have a conversation about how bad it could become? Or is it just that
1: we don't have rational people running these, in these countries? We, historically, we have sometimes done what you've just described. So like, take biological weapons or chemical weapons. We have, there are international agreements governing those forms of weapons, and we have tried to constrain them and their use. And to some degree, we've been successful. It's worked, yeah. Yeah. Chemical weapons, let's take that as an example. They've been used in Syria recently. They definitely have not been eradicated from the earth. Um, They're possessed all over the place and probably uh, surreptitiously in ways we don't appreciate or or could ever know. Um, But we've constrained their use compared to, let's say, World War I, which was like the peak. Now, some of that's because they turned out to be not that effective, and you know, some of them like you put it in the air and it blows the wrong way because of the wind and your own troops die, and there's a bunch of problems with them. So you can't attribute it to law. Um, a lot of it is more about norms and taboos. This also applies to nuclear weapons. So there's a big literature in international relations about the nuclear taboo or the chemical weapons taboo. So what is it that explains the fact that people do not use these weapons? And it's this taboo? Well, that's one kind of theory is that there's something more than just rational deterrence going on, that there's a sense of, I don't know if it's right or wrong, or crossing a line that can't be crossed or one doesn't want to cross that's constrained their use. So it's almost like an anthropological thing, but we don't really understand it well. And so it's just to say those things exist, they're out there. So when it comes
2: to AI, we can't create a taboo because most people don't even know
1: what's going to go wrong. We're not with it. even there yet. Yeah. So, so those examples suggest you could do something. It's not totally hopeless. On the other hand, you have to understand the weapons and what they mean. And it took us a long time to get there. So with AI, yeah, we don't know. And a lot of people think AI is awesome. Huh. They want more AI. I don't, I don't need any I'm more I'm not one AI. of those people. But yeah, there me are, neither. There are I've people seen, who think...
2: I've read too many sci-fi uh, books to, to... There are people who think what,
1: sorry? Well, just like they kind of like... The analogy is fire. We invented, or whatever, we didn't invent fire, but we controlled fire at some point in our distant past. Oh, Donald Trump invented fire, actually. So, Probably, yes. It's, yeah. it's brilliant. <laughs> and so we, we, and we got burned. You yeah. know, people got burned. But we also got heat and cooking and all of these other things. And look at all the great stuff that came from fire. Sure, our houses burn down sometimes. Do you have the, the uh, this, may, this is, may not be, your expertise, but I'm just curious
2: as someone who thinks about all this stuff a lot, and uh, and I know you organize conferences and talks and groups with tech people and technology about what, what could happen in the future. Do you ever wonder if like maybe we should kind of stop with the whole tech thing for a minute and like just take a, take a knee and like that, that <laughs> we're kind of heading, you know, it's interesting. I've just been watching the TV show unibomb about the Unabomber, and I've also, I was reading last year, I don't know how I ended up on it, but I was I ended up reading Ted Kaczynski's um, the manifesto. manifesto and and look the guy was it's not was, that crazy it's not that crazy it's it really is not it's you know he's and he has this great line that um, he, he was crazy and the way he went about what he did was crazy and awful but and, the ideas are, are not but the ideas are not and he has this great line about you know society is eventually we are becoming so dependent on technology and i'm paraphrasing here but we're becoming so dependent on technology that eventually society is going to break as a result of it something's going to go wrong and it is better that it that it breaks now when when it doesn't consume everything than if it breaks in the future when it does and and i you know i think about this stuff and look i love my laptop i love this podcasting equipment we're having a conversation on and and i think that you know it's great that i can call my sister in england and talk about brexit but i also think that there are so many terrible things that we do with technology um and I wonder if, you know, there's a, uh, Jimmy Avine said uh, that he has a saying, him and Dr. Dre has a saying that um, if the shit gets bigger than the cat, get rid of the cat. And it's essentially like, if things are getting worse than better, maybe get rid of the thing. And I, and I, so I wonder, are we on this path where things may get worse than better?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of think we're going to annihilate ourselves as a as a species, as a civilization, whatever, at some point in the future, I am not very optimistic about our ability to control all of this thing. Now, I think, I ho- I'm hoping that is hundreds of years away, but you know, I don't really know, and I don't have a lot of confidence that we're going to solve that problem. On the other hand, I don't really think you can put the toothpaste back in the tube. And can you stop squeezing the tube? <laughs> it, maybe. It's really hard. I mean, the thing, we are seeing more, what's interesting is now, versus five years ago, there's much more discussion, you know this better than I do, but much more discussion in Silicon Valley and in the tech world about, wait a second, maybe technology is not an unalloyed good. And granted, there's not a ton of that happening in Silicon Valley, but the outside world is increasingly saying, by the way, Facebook, you have kind of fucked up our election. Um, by the way, you know, this technology or that technology is causing cell phones are destroying our youth, whatever. There's all these discussions happening that we couldn't even have imagined a little while ago. So I think that's a sign that we're reevaluating. But that's one thing. It's very different to then actually stop. Really stop. Okay,
2: so since we're just on this whole this whole kick about the end of the world us dying and so on and this so forth. This is like a just, dorm room box. Let's just we're just gonna go all in and then we'll try to come out okay. in some happy thought. We'll find one somewhere. Um so I had a guest on uh last year, DA Wallach, and uh Oh I know DA. Uh, DA's great. He's a good friend. Um and he was him and I were talking about uh, actually in my hot tub over there. Uh, um, Wait, you did got, the
1: podcast in the no, hot tub? No, we didn't
2: do the podcast in the hot tub. We had a conversation <laughs> that, that I was like, this is fascinating. We should, we should talk about this on the podcast. Um, but we, um, uh, and listeners, if you want to come and hang out in the hot tub, just let me know. Hit me up on Twitter. Um, we were talking about, he was explaining how uh, we are getting to this point where you know we are starting to be able to manipulate Uh, our genes and, 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 and so on of of, a next generation. And, and, and he was saying how, what we're going to start to see in in the next, in the coming generations is, is actual manipulation where you say, I, um, I want my kid to be not just blonde haired and, and have good eyesight, but to be more empathetic or stronger or whatever. And I, and we kind of started talking about all these ideas of how, that could start to come, become really bad. Sure. And, uh, and I said, well, we can't do that. You know, that's terrible. We have to, there has to be rules in place. And, we, and, and he said, well, what, okay, so let's just say that the US puts those rules in place. Um, how, what do you stop, how do you stop China from doing it? And then China decides to build a super race of people that are 17 feet tall and, and you know, stronger than, than some sort of robot. Um, and we're just going to sit there. So we have to kind of play along is this something that people are talking about too in,
1: in you know foreign affairs circles or? People are not talking about seventeen foot super races, but <laughs> they are they are talking about the fundamental problem that he identified. He's totally right. People have talked about it for a long time, which is that's the nature of the international system: is it is an a lightly governed anarchic system that you can't really control what other societies do, and so yeah, we could have our own rules about genetic engineering. It doesn't stop anyone else, again, unless we have some kind of global agreement. And even if you do have a global agreement, then you have all the usual problems of how do you enforce it? How do you make sure everyone's complying? All of those things that we've talked about and studied for decades and have not really solved. So you can't count on that. The example that's, that's maybe more realistic is something like climate engineering. Hmm. So let's say climate change accelerates in the next decade or two, it really starts to be destructive. Um, some countries are going to disappear literally, and some countries are going to really suffer. And those countries might be interested in trying to engineer the climate by shooting, you know, sulfates into the atmosphere, or whatever. There's already, you know, a lot of talk about that. That's a whole topic we could spend an hour on. But you can't really stop someone from doing that. And do you think that, so? What, who's working on that? What's what, where? Where is that in the? Uh,
2: in the, in the, in the it's a touchy
1: the- issue because a lot of the climate people, people who study climate change, take climate change seriously, do not want to study climate engineering because they think that's sort of throwing in the towel. Because if you start to think about how would it actually work, then you're seeding the idea that we're not really going to control climate change through emissions control by, by everybody driving a Prius. But we're not. Whatever. We're not. Of course we're not. I mean, but people, most people don't care. Yeah. This is why the other side says, which I tend to agree with, says we actually need to understand climate engineering because we may have to do it and we need to have a better, we might as well be doing the research now. And then there's the third dimension, which is how do we control the engineering part itself, which is what you really asked about. And we're not really there. And, and so, so the,
2: the people that are saying we should understand it, what kind of research are they doing
1: right now? There are scientists looking at, so you could take an example like when Mount Pinatubo blew up, Uh, it sent all of these substances into the atmosphere, stratosphere, et cetera, and had a cooling effect. And so there are analogs to that. I mean, that's one version. There's other things that maybe are not necessarily climate engineering, um, per se, but are more about extracting carbon out of the atmosphere. So not just stopping, putting it in, but like literally sucking it out and then like storing it somewhere. So all of those things are happening, research is all those things are happening, but, um, I would not say that we are ready to implement any of those things. I I bet the conspiracy at scale.
2: Uh, at scale I bet the conspiracy theorists that believe that there are chemtrails in the aeroplanes are, oh, uh, are very excited about this. The the um you know, speaking of, of of climate change, uh um because you know it's the new year and we should just keep scaring the shit out of anyone who's still listening at this point. It <laughs> hasn't uh run away and hid in a bunker somewhere. Um the Paris Accord and our you know under Trump, uh, uh, and uh, the administration, are um, decisions, and mm-hmm. I say are because we are now among them, um, what do you think the long-term effects are um, of the decisions last year? To
1: start to withdraw from Paris? Yeah, to start to withdraw. So I think it's troubling, kind of going back to where we started earlier about China and the U.S., anytime the U.S., steps out of a traditional leadership role that it's held. And we have, I would not call us a big leader in the climate realm, but we have been an important player for sure. And we are definitely stepping back in a big way. And that's enabling China, who's come a very long way on this issue, to step up. So that's one dimension of it. The other thing that's unfortunate is it means that the biggest economy on earth is not going to be out of this game, but we're going to kind of go to the sidelines for a little bit. All of that said, I think it's not as bad as it might appear because what we've done here in California, we have done an enormous amount around climate change and we will continue to do that to the degree that we can. There are certain things we can't do as a state, but we are the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. We can do quite a bit. And we have agreements with other states and other nations as well. And so you see that at the municipal level, you see that at the state level, uh, lots of other states are similar to California. So I don't think it's as bad as it might appear. But under Scott Pruitt, it's pretty bad for, it's pretty the, bad. Una- the, for the U.S., for people in Pruitt's the bad on a whole set of other dimensions as well. He's been a disaster. But I think on climate, you know, we also shouldn't make too much of Paris. Paris is a successful agreement. It appears impressive in some ways. But only because our, our baseline is so low, we expect so little of these agreements. I think if I really, truly believe that
2: Pruitt is, is the most destructive of all the people in the entire administration, Shocking. even more so than Donald Trump. I, wow. I, I, that's a big statement. Because I have two kids and I look at what Pruitt's doing and and uh, with the EPA and it, it is it's terrifying. It real, it's destructive and terrifying and um, I just you know I just can't believe that he wakes up every morning and does what he does and sleeps well at night. It, it just, just it's, boggles my mind.
1: Yeah. It's disgusting and we're not paying enough attention because we're overwhelmed. Yeah, because
2: we're overwhelmed like, with, with every dumb tweet that's about comes
1: in. about buttons and
2: right. who's got a bigger one and so on and so forth. All right. So so winding down, uh, we will find one thing to talk about in a, a positive note uh, before we end here, but um, and maybe this is it. Who knows? But how do you think the U.S. recovers from Trump and his administration? Um, you know, is is it that 10 years from now, five years from now, whatever it is, that we are no longer the global superpower we were, that that's, that's the—is that's the, it that— that, you know, we, the other countries, when we finally get someone new, you know, unless, unless Trump decides to forego elections and just remain in power until, until he hands off to his son, <laughs> Eric, and then oh, Barron and the rest of them, which is entirely <laughs> really possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, is it that, you know, that other countries we, we, you know, we vote someone in that, is not the rock, but is you know actually really. What's wrong with the rock? The rock actually probably would be pretty good. Um, he'd be entertaining if nothing else. Uh, um, and that that we look, that other countries look back like we do and say, eh, you know, I get it. That was a mistake. It was a total chance, like you said earlier. It was an accident. How do we? How do you think that we're that this all recovers in the
1: future? I mean, I'm kind of of two minds on it. I think we. We as a nation have shown that we are pretty resilient and we have, I think, capacity to change. And I'm hoping that this is the blip that you described and someone, maybe not The Rock, but someone's going to come in who's going to be a reasonable leader, Republican or Democrat, because frankly, there's a lot of Republicans, many Republicans who are totally disgusted and appalled by what's going on. But anyway, I think something of that could happen. One example that I like to look at is here in California, We had Pete Wilson as governor in the early 1990s. And Wilson ran on a, he was, I think, one of the last Republicans, I guess Schwarzenegger, kind of counted as a Republican, ran on an anti-immigrant stance, not unlike Trump. And there's not a lot of parallels that you would draw, but there's some. And that was like the last gasp of the Republican Party in California. And it's progressively shrunk. And now it's almost gone, basically. Hmm. And the demography just overtook it. And it was like a kind of, whatever, temper tantrum, and then it all ended for them. And my hope is maybe that's what's going on here. Yeah. And the Republican Party will also implode, that it's kind of reached this crazy crescendo with Trump, Roy Moore, all the things that we've seen going on. And demography will eventually take over, and the party will, will reel back from what it's done over a very different world. But there's no guarantee of that, and we're a very conservative society in a lot of ways. So I'm not, again, not super optimistic, but I'm hopeful that over the long term, maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's 20 years, we will look back on this era and realize it was a terrible mistake to elect him and things will be better. Providing that we're all still Still here.
2: here. Yes. Yes. um, One can only hope. Uh, One other last question for you, and it may seem ridiculous, and it is ridiculous, but I also, it's something that people do talk about. So there's always these, like, whenever something terrible happens uh, with Trump or Republicans or the Midwest or something, there are all these people that say, we should secede. California should secede. Of course, that would be amazing because we, you know, live I'm in I'm pro-secession. You are pro-secession. Yes. Uh, 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 it would be amazing until, the, until we needed some aid from an earthquake or something like that. But, but um, We can handle that. Do you think that, is there, is there a world, I mean, look, it's totally nuts. I get it. But is there a world in which the, you could see states
1: seceding? There's no realistic scenario in which California secedes. That said, on the merits, secession is a very good idea, and people don't take it seriously enough. But how, but so how, so how would it work? How would it happen? Like, I, I completely agree with you. I think it would
2: be, you know, would it be like, you know, the Midwest is, is Palestine, and we got to fly over each other to get from <laughs> to other parts of Israel? It's like, not, not
1: going to happen. I mean, we, you know, we decided this in the Civil War, and it was pretty clear you can't secede. But if the rest of the country, if through some miracle— We all came to an agreement like, okay, California, go your own way. We're giant. Like there are the average state in the international system has a population of six to eight million people. That's like the median. So we are plenty big economically. We're in the top 10, top five, depending on how you count. We're bigger than Canada. We're bigger than Australia. We're almost as big as the UK population wise. Wow. So the idea that California can't manage it, that's crazy. Of course it can. So, so. I know this is totally. The problem hypothetical. is getting rid of the rest of the United States. I know this is totally hypothetical and it wouldn't
2: happen. But if it were, how would it happen? Would it? Would, it, would you have to, like, Congress vote on like what? How, what's the legal way that there's it, no legal way? There's none. We just we not. would have to start some sort of civil war. Yeah, Constitution does not allow for it. But what if we built a war, of, of an army of robots? Google did, and, <laughs> and they were responsible that for that. Could it. do it. That could do it. All right, so that's ending on
1: an optimistic note. All right,
2: no, so so real, real last question, uh, real optimistic question, I guess is, um, uh, should I move to Canada? <laughs> <laughs> no, California is great. California is great. I, no, I I think look, you know, for all the terrifying stuff we we've talked about, um, it it's
1: not all that bad, right? No, no, it's not. And look, most people, we're we're paying attention to everything that's coming down the pike on Twitter and whatever, reading the news constantly. Most people aren't paying any attention at all. They're totally happy. I we think could probably learn something from them. I think we should stop paying
2: attention. We should take like an hour away from it all. I actually, I have. I've stopped, I've stopped looking as much as I used to. That's your New Year's resolution. That's, it's My New Year's resolution is to read more books. Good idea. I used to read before Twitter and Trump. I used to read like 60 books a year. And now I'm down to like five. And I want to try to... I'm not going to get back up to sixty, but I wouldn't mind getting that's to twelve or something like that. Yeah, um, and it's uh, and I've deleted all social media from my phone, so it's a great, great idea. And I can still read the news, can still stay informed, listen to podcasts
1: like Inside the Hive. Uh, <laughs> and uh, do you have any New Year's resolutions? I don't, but I'm going to adopt your idea of deleting a lot of things off my phone. And I think that's a good idea. I want to be better about my phone. I feel like that is the that is the thing yeah. that I, I need to break. The, well, the
2: addiction I have to break. Well, well uh, our mutual friend who, who was on here a couple of weeks ago, uh, went into the desert and. Uh, yes,
1: that's a good idea.
2: And uh, and he, um, he he seemed to do a pretty good job of, of it. So maybe we should just go into the desert after this. Cal, thank you so much for taking the time to My chat pleasure. with us today. it has been really fascinating, and I hope that we are around at the end of the year. To maybe have another conversation about where we ended up—that'd be terrific.
1: Appreciate it. Thanks. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: So that was some light reading, Nick. Thanks. (sighs) Well, I think the good news here is that we're We're all going to die. Well, we're still taping this in California. We're still part of the United States of America. The, The secession movement has not started yet. The robots have not spawned and germinated, but. It Sounds kind of plausible that we're all gonna um, Die. be a part of some, yeah, some, some mass robotic genocide. Um, how do you feel about that? Well, the thing that I found so fascinating
2: coming from Cal was that, um, you know, he was when he was talking about the fact that with these nuclear weapons, we, we it was kind of like war games where, like, you know, that famous part in war games where the only way to win is not to play at all. And I and I do feel like, you know talking about Nixon and all these folks, they were just as psychopathic and lunatics, maybe not just as, but pretty close to, to Donald Trump. They all kind of had this realization that if we have some sort of nuclear war, um, that it's not going to work out well for us. And the Cold War was an example. It never got to that. It got very close. But the thing that's so fascinating is when you think about artificial intelligence and what he was saying about that, that that we don't know how it's going to go wrong. And I think that... that that The scariest part for me is that, that with these technologies, and Twitter, as we started the show talking about, is a perfect example of that. It is something that was started for good and has been used for terrible things. Um, and uh, and I think that, that that when you kind of think about AI and these coming technologies and robotics and so on and so forth, those are the things that I think are, are pretty terrifying for the future.
0: Well, I was listening to this conversation. It, it, it occurred to me, um, I started to think about the singularity, <laughs> this sort yeah. of... Um, uh, dystopian notion that 's somewhat popular in the tech world or at least more popular there than in other worlds that basically um, we 've all gone through this before um, and we 're you know we 're nearing the end of some sort of um, civilization that 's uh, a small blip in a larger civilization that 's recreated it 's sort of hard to explain but but basically we 're going to all kill ourselves um, because we 're living in the minds of robots in, in, in some way is that um, For the first time, I also thought that was kind of BS. But for the first time, it occurred to me: Oh yeah, we're at a natural point in our evolutionary cycle as a civilization where we figured out like heat and hot water, how to bathe, all the important stuff. Cars, self-driving cars, drones. Now we're going to kill ourselves, and that's going to happen because we're all living in the mind of some sort of larger civilization itself. I don't know if we're going to. So the singularity, I think, is kind of a
2: little bit of bullshit because it's. Here's a perfect example. So when When we talk about building artificial intelligence, we think because our brains are not capable of thinking outside of this. We think about a a, a computer that thinks and acts like a human, that has empathy that mm. that is that has different forms of creativity or whatever it is right um but that's not the way we build things. So when we decided we were going to build things that fly, the first versions of those were trying to copy birds. And you would mm-hmm. flap your arms with wings on them and so on. What planes are today are these metal things, these tubes with wings and turbines, and they're completely different. When we recreated uh, the idea of, of, of being underwater with submarines, they don't shake and, and move their, their tails yeah. like like fish. They, have, they are these tubes that travel into water. And you can look at every single technology that is a uh, a replica of something in nature and we, we do it differently. And I think that AI and the singularity and robotics and all those things are another version of that. And And I think that what's going to end up happening is that we are going to create something that we haven't seen before, Um, and at the same time, there are going to be vast consequences of that. And the perfect example is the car was an Mm -hmm. incredible invention, right? You got here today in a car. We, I go to the grocery store, it has changed the world we live in, but there are things that have happened negatively as a result of that 1.2 million people die every year because of car accidents, 34,000 in the United States alone. There are all these things that have happened as a result of, of cars, the way city and urban planning, and and um, uh, the the effects on of, of of you know carbon effects on the planet, so on and so forth. And so, when you look at every technology, there's a negative, and the question is, what is the negative going to be for this?
0: Well, one of the funny things that you think about when you hear conversations like this one is that as our political parties begin to realign or or redefine themselves. One has to wonder if one of these parties or, or a, a kind of party within, of it, within it that um, uh, becomes an outshoot becomes the sort of pro-tech party, and, and, and as an extension, the pro-robotics, par, you know, pro, uh, pro-AI party. And the other party becomes the, for lack of a better term, Pro human party. Right now, that actually is what the alt right is. It, 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 it is a uh, the alt right is what the pro human party. In some ways, it is. It, it is an, it is considered an, an anti progress party. It, it's an anti evolution party. It, it's it's bordered and and, and nativist. But it has caught on in large part because it's trying to preserve a certain way of life that existed before we had these technological innovations. Now there are profound dangers to that. Of course, I'm, I'm not even getting into the vast. Disgusting racist yeah, yeah, elements of, of, of parts of Breitbart, but if you want to look at that, that wing of the Republican Party, it is um, it's astonishingly anti anti progress. Well, but the problem the problem is that tech within itself
2: is believes that it is progress. It's interesting because you know we're recording this on a Thursday and and today uh, Mark Zuckerberg came out and and said what his. Um, his resolution is his. You know, he does every year. He sure. does these things where he's gonna. He has one thing:
0: speak Mandarin, yeah, whatever. Country, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Learn
2: to drink my own pee, whatever it is that he's gonna do for a year. And he today's was this year's is that he is he his intention when he built Facebook. This is what he says: was that technology would bring us all together, and that it, it is not doing that. And he wants to learn how to fix that and how to use technology to. To, you know, help us move forward, but not to do so in a detrimental way, which is ironically his, I guess his, his goal this year is just to run Facebook. But, um, but, but I think that, I don't think that you get one without the other. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things that is, that when you kind of look to solve problems in like when the Democrats and the Republicans and all these place people look to solve problems, there is a form of technology they use to do that. Sure. Um, the problem is that no one is sitting
0: there thinking about the negatives. Right. And it's... Um, well, and, and, to, and to put a, a fine point in it, technology enhances the, the wealth and opportunities for a incredibly small and diminishing oh, yeah. group of people. And, and it creates uh, astonishingly large problems for a vast and growing. That, that, it just literally, it, it throws opportunity to, a, to a, a small top and creates problems among a growing base. Well, one of the things that it was
2: interesting with the conversation with Cal was, you know, the Unabomber conversation Mm -hmm. about how when you read the manifesto, it's actually not wrong. Uh, the way he went about spreading the, spreading the word of it, not, not, not great, you know, killing people, blowing them up. But, but the concept that, you know, we are building these technologies that we're becoming reliant on and there are going to be vast consequences as a result of that is, is something that we just don't think about. And, uh, and I think, you know, for, as for me as someone who has two little kids, when I think about where what the the world they're going to live in when they're my age or our age like it's that's scary
0: yeah it, it's true at a certain point the people are going to have to fight back against the machines and-, and I do
2: think that's happening a little bit. I think mm-hmm. that you know the, the thing that you're seeing where people are trying to use social media less where they're okay. they're using ironically technology to like they're downloading apps that tell them to get off their phone. They're putting right. blockers on their computers so they can't go to different websites. And um, you know, people who are you know starting rituals where they take the Sabbath off to not to not use technology. I think tech Sabbath. That's a tech very Sabbath, funny idea. Yeah, I do think that people are pushing back. Um, but we are. There's no question that we are we are at war with technology and the amount of control it wants over us. And um, the question is, who's going to win? Well, let's start by. Uh, go having uh, dinner right now. Let's do it. Let's go get drunk. Thanks to my guest this week, Cal Roustiala. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any way you get your podcasts. And please do me a favor and go and leave a really nice review while you're there. Thanks, of course, to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. Thanks to my editors at Vanity Fair. And most of all, thanks to our sponsor this week, Freshly. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. Now, if we don't get killed in some sort of tweet-related nuclear attack, I will see you all next week.
0: And if you are watching this video...